if you could have more fulfillment and ease in your professional and personal life and still be ambitious. Join me, Kathy Onetto, founder of Sustainable Ambition, for conversations with experts, authors, and friends on what it means to live with sustainable ambition. Learn concepts, tips, and tools to craft a fulfilling career on your terms while still being ambitious and avoiding burnout. For show notes from this episode, visit sustainableambition.com slash podcast. Now, let's learn more to help you craft your career to support your life from decade to decade. On to today's conversation. Welcome back, everyone. I am so excited to be joined today by Jack Shea. Jack, welcome to the show. Thanks, Kathy. Happy to be here. So as an intro to this episode, I wanted to share why I wanted to have Jack on. And this is similar to episode 45 with my friend, Dominic DeMarco. I have been interested in speaking with people who have engaged in activities that require endurance and resilience. And I believe our careers are a journey that require both. And I wanted to learn more to see if those who've engaged in such activities as like through hiking, ultra marathons, perhaps Ironmans or long distance cycles. You know, what have they learned from those experiences to apply to how we might lead more sustainable lives plus work? And Jack is an ultra marathoner. He has run races like the Tahoe Rim Trail 100 mile race, Tour de Giants. I think I'm going to mispronounce that still, Jack, even though you gave me some guidance. This is a 330 kilometer race in Italy running through the Alps, which sounds amazing. And then the Western States 100, which is a preeminent ultra race. So Jack also does this while managing his career and having a family. So just a little bit more about Jack and his work. Jack is Director of Project Management at VEC, a construction technology services company in the Bay Area. He is passionate about developing and applying innovative tools that address the inefficiencies in the architectural engineering and construction industry. So what does that look like? One service that his company performs is to construct 3D models of buildings to find issues and resolve them before the contractor starts the physical building process. Jack works directly with clients to understand their pain points and finds unique solutions to their needs. He also provides business and project management guidance within the company by aligning strategic initiatives with the delivery of those their services. So as you can imagine, given that Jack is an ultramarathoner, uh, he spends most of his spare time in the outdoors, which inspires him to affect meaningful changes through his work. So Jack, you've noted, um, I believe I found this on your LinkedIn, that, you know, re- reducing construction waste, eliminating rework, increasing prefabrication, and pr- promoting sustainable design and construction practices are really essential to our future. And I think it um, inspires some of the work that you do in your career. So thank you again for being on. I'm excited to talk to you about both your work as well as your amazing adventures. And before we get into that, I'd love to just start by having you tell us about the kind of work you do. I know I just gave a preamble of it, but maybe you can give us like a high level overview of your career to date, just so we have a sense of what you're doing in terms of work and how your endurance activities fit into a broader context. Sure. Thanks for having me here today, Kathy. Yeah. So I started out my career as a structural engineer, and I practiced engineering for a few years before going to work for commercial contractors as a project manager, overseeing large building projects and developments. 
After about 10 years of that, I became disillusioned with seeing how wasteful and efficient the industry was and also got burnt out due to the number of hours that I was working. The construction industry is known to be uh, pretty inefficient um, in, in terms of uh, producing a lot of waste, uh, having to go back and redo a lot of work uh, due to it uh, not being performed correctly the first time. And so um, I decided that I wanted to use all those years of design and construction experience to, to uh, work on the technology side of uh, the industry in order to uh, help um, with those kinds of issues, um, which in, in turn promotes you know, sustainable design and construction practices. So I pivoted and went to work for a startup that were focused on construction technology focusing on developing different kinds of solutions to help move the industry forward. And I've been working on the tech side of uh, uh, design and construction for about seven years now. So that's great. Your your career trajectory, and I might come back to that, Jack, just this idea of the fact that you pivoted and maybe whether or not you learned anything from even your endurance activities that kind of informed and helped you make that transition. So thanks for giving that context for the work that you do. And I'm curious, what does your family life look like? I've been married to my wife, Kelly, for 15 years, and we have one son, Aiden. Kelly was previously a biology professor, and more recently, she took a break from that to write a book with her dad. Wow, that sounds amazing, too. Sounds like she's done some pivoting as well, so that sounds really exciting. Well, let me get into your endurance running. I'd love to learn a little bit more. Like, How did you even get introduced to this, and then how did you get started with it? Sure. It's, it's interesting because I had never been a serious runner, runner in my life. I had always spent a lot of time in the outdoors, climbing and hiking. In fact, I was a very dedicated rock climber for about 10 years and uh, spent upwards of 30 weekends a year climbing outside somewhere, usually in Yosemite, around Tahoe, or somewhere in the Sierra. So I did have some aspirations back then to see more of the Sierra beyond just climbing specific routes up the side of a mountain. Um, and after we started a family, the climbing slowed down a bit. Uh, and I had a couple of friends who had gotten into endurance running. I would run ultra marathons from time to time, including 100 mile races in the mountains. I just thought it was fascinating that these types of events existed and that people would actually sign up for them and finish. <laughs> What was fascinating to you about that? Like what caught your attention? Just the fact that it's kind of like, did you think that was crazy? I mean, here you, did you do like in your climbing even, did you do multi-pitch climbing and things like that? Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I did. Um, I, I did all kinds of climbing, if you know anything about it. So, uh, so there's, you know, this climbing up blank faces that might have bolts on them. But then if you wanted to climb in places like Yosemite, you had to, uh, place your own gear. Um, and I ended up uh, working my way to climbing El Cap and uh, spending a few nights up on uh, El Cap. Wow. So I was going to say, because that's pretty, um, you know, intense to, from my perspective, I've never had the courage to do that kind of climbing. So then what's interesting is that you found these endurance events as well, kind of fascinating. So what caught your attention about them specifically? Well, I mean, before I even started or ran my first ultra marathon, I, I thought it was crazy, just like what everyone else thinks when they meet me now. Um, but there's just uh, 
something about you know doing something that takes such a long time. Um, you know, the Haramah events uh, could could take twenty, thirty, or forty hours. Um, and the fact that these events existed uh, made me want to try them. Hmm, hmm. And some people would like run away from it, right? So like, did, was there, is there something that you value in terms of like, is it a challenge kind of thing? Or what kind of, do, do you think really drew you to finally be like, I'm actually going to take that on? Yeah, and early on, it seemed like it would just be a good challenge. And I'm mm-hmm. sure we'll get more into all the things I've, I've learned along the way. Um, I, um, I, I didn't uh, train a whole lot for my first ultra marathon. In fact, I just kind of jumped into a 50 kilometer race uh, one weekend uh, without much thought or training. And oh it gosh. really hurt. And I swore I would never do them again. But you did. So, well, let's, let's back up for a second because, um, you know, I'm, I think some people might be like, wait a second, what is this exactly? And what are these? So, and I rattled off a few of the races that you've done and my understanding, like some of these I, I have heard of just cause I've been in this world a little bit and I have some other friends that do some, some of these races, the one in the Alps I have not heard of, but perhaps you can tell us a little bit more about some of the races you have done and just maybe bring people into those experiences a little bit, just so you, they understand me and maybe how you started, what you built up to. Yeah. So maybe we can just define an ultra marathon is in case, uh, and not everyone, everyone knows what the exact definition is. Te- technically an ultra marathon is just anything that's longer than a 26.2 mile marathon. And so you could do a 26.3 mile run and call yourself an ultra marathoner. In practice, though, they typically start at 31 miles because that's 50 kilometers, which is a nice round metric number. And and even though there's you know shorter races, uh, but but typically it's 50 k's and longer. And and from there they just get longer and longer. Um, higher mile races um, uh, um, are something that a lot of people work up to, but it's not something you have to do you know most some people are happy just doing 50ks or 50 milers uh but you know higher milers are, are certainly popular and have gained a lot of popularity as has uh, ultra marathons in general over the last few years um so uh, um a 50 kilometer race um <clears throat> could take as something as short as three hours if it's you know really flat and it's being done by um, an elite professional athlete uh and then um, paramile races, um, you know, they could be on, done on a track uh, or it could be on a trail or on the mountains. Uh, for me, I, I do it. I do these things so I could be in the trails or in the mountains. Uh, and so um, um, they typically, you know, again, for the really fast runners on easier courses, you know, they could do, the, do them in 13 or 14 hours. Um, but, but most events um, are, uh, are harder. Uh, you know, they, they go up and down mountains with varying amounts of elevation. Sometimes they're at altitude. Uh, and so the, you know, there's cutoff times for these events. And for the higher mile races, they're typically around 30 to 48 hours, depending on the course. And then they can also get longer. Um, and I think one of the races you already mentioned, Tour de Jean, uh, is one that runs through the Italian Alps that I did this last uh, September. And that was, uh, uh, listed as 330 kilometers, which uh, translates to 206 miles, but uh, 
I ended up recording almost 230 miles uh, on my GPS. Um, and, and that one had more than 80,000 feet of climbing um, over 25 passes in the Alps. Uh, that was done continuously. So it ended up taking her and 37 hours. Oh my goodness. So can we just deep dive on that one for just a second? Because it's sure. like, how, so 137 hours, I can't do the math quickly enough. So multiple days, obviously. Almost and six days. Six days. So how do you manage something like that? Well, that's that's a good question. Uh, I, I didn't know how I was going to do that because it was the first time I'd ever done anything that long. But before that, I had completed roughly uh, 50 ultra marathons um, with her miles being the longest. And I had done about th- 13 of them. So I was somewhat comfortable with mile races, but mm-hmm. but Tour de Jean is, is an iconic event. It was, it's a famous race um, in Italy, and I've been keen to try something longer. And so um, <clears throat> I ended up signing up for it, not knowing how I was going to do something that was going to um, take uh, potentially four or five times um, as long as I, I previously spent uh, going through. And previously, I had only go, gone through one night uh, typically one you know, overnight uh, with no sleep, uh, whereas this one was going through multiple days. Um, while you are allowed to sleep during the race, uh, they have cots set up in these various uh, refugios or huts in the Alps um, and other towns along the way. It, it turns out that it's actually really hard to sleep uh, when you're uh, doing something like this uh, because you're, you know, you... Um, you're really tired and you get really tired after a couple of days. Uh, but uh, when you try and lay down and sleep, it, it's actually really hard to fall asleep uh, because I think you're just so, so wired uh, and knowing that you still have, you know, a hair miles and another 45,000 feet of climbing to go. Um, so I, I ended up sleeping about, you know, four or five hours over the course of six days, less wow. than an hour a day, which, which turns out is not uncommon talking to uh, other people finishers. Yeah. So it's so interesting. Well, I'm wondering, maybe I can ask you some questions and well, you can um, either use that race as a foil or maybe if your other races as well, but I'm kind of curious for even that one. So you said, well, I hadn't done anything like this, so I wasn't quite sure how it was going to go, but how did you plan and prepare for it? You know, it, it, was there any type of like, were you able to talk to other people who had done it before or, you know, are there, you know, now there are things I'm sure online that you can reference perhaps where people are posting or talking about what they did, but how did you, what was planning like for you? Yeah, you're, you're right. There are a lot of resources these days online and I, I did seek out um, other people who had finished this race um, and I have at least a couple of close friends who had done it. Um, but the, you know, the thing with 200 milers, I mean, they've, they've been around uh, for a few years now. We have a few here in the U.S. as well. Um, there's still there's still a lot that um, people are learning about them, and so there's not necessarily a, a consistent uh, process or, uh, by which you train for them, and there's no consistent standard by which you execute them. You know, to to come back to contrast them to one hundred mile races, typically that's going to be overnight. So you just you know uh, drink as much Coke and coffee as you need to, uh, typically an unhealthy amount to stay up so that you can run through the night and, and you're done the next day. And then that's that. 
but you know, with two hundred mile races, there's you know, you have to sleep at some point. Uh, or actually, there there are people who don't um, at all. Uh, but and so it's there's various kinds of strategies you hear with you know people taking fifteen minute naps every twelve hours versus you know taking trying to take a one hour nap every uh, twenty four hours. Uh, and so I, I I kind of learned all those things and basically figured out that there really was no consistent uh, uh, advice or process you're supposed to follow. But um, but I, I did what I could uh, in terms of training. Uh, typically, you try to simulate the, the kind of terrain and the kind of uh, uh, steepness that you might encounter, which is hard to find here in the U.S. because, you know, every path was, you know, three to 5,000 feet of climbing. So unless you go to the um, eastern side of the Sierra or, or Colorado, you can't just find that kind of climbing. But so yeah, we have Mount Diablo here in the Bay Area, which while it's at sea level, you know, it, you know, it does climb about three thousand feet. Um, and then the fact that they don't believe in switchbacks in the Alps, you know, everything is really steep. And so, so then you you have to find a very uh, uh, obscure routes here on some of the local trails, like a short section or on Mount Diablo. There's a couple of trails on the north side that might have that kind of steepness. Uh, just to uh, kind of simulate what you might encounter. Right, right. Well, and so that's really interesting. So you're planning for that. And then you were talking about like, so this, in, you know, endurance aspect of it, like over a number of days and when do you sleep or what have you. So I was curious to ask you about how do you think about sustaining yourself over the course of that race. And then also even you have to sustain yourself even through the training too. So how do you think about that aspect of it? So it sounds like, you know, for the longer race too, you're kind of, you know, there was different strategies for either resting or for pausing or what have you, but I don't know, how do you think about actually making sure that you will be able to have the endurance to get through the race? Well, you, you know that you're going to have a uh, uh, low points along the way, whether it's training or racing. Um, so uh, for me, I try to enjoy the journey and have a bit of fun along the way. Uh, there, are, there are ups and downs, and I try and take it all in stride, so to speak. Um, you know, with, uh, uh, I want to talk about training a bit as well. So, um, you know, when I'm training, I'm, I'm running six or seven days a week, and, and there are a couple of days in there every week where I just don't feel like going out into the trails. Um, especially if I'm tired or I had a long day at work. Uh, but most of the time I still lace up and, and muster the strength to go out the door. And I'm almost always glad that I did. Running gives me an outlet to unwind and de-stress from the day. And, um, and so being on the trails or in the mountains is a way for me to connect uh, with Mother Earth. And the more that I'm able to make that connection, the more zest and energy that I gain to sustain this passion. And, and the same thing carries over to being in these races, um, just uh, riding through those low points and having confidence from the time that I did put into training to then um, stay myself uh, over the course of the race. And of course, you have to do a lot of little things like pace yourself along the way so that you, know, you don't uh, go too hard and you know and end up um, you know, just completely blocking or running out of energy. Uh, to not be able to continue or to have to stop for, for many hours to recover from that. Yeah. Well, and that's really interesting too, this idea, part of what you started with too, is like, 
this counterbalance between knowing like, hey, there's going to be these low points. So how do I have fun along the way? And like, what does that look like when you're out on the trail? Is that just taking in, like you're saying, taking in your surroundings, taking in, you know, nature and what have you? Or are there other things that you do to kind of, you know, take in or kind of acknowledge the fun that you're having along the way? Yeah, I mean, I, I really like being outside and being in new places, and and so that's that's one of the reasons I, I choose different races as well, so I can uh, see see different parts of the country and experience different parts, um, uh, different trails and different mountains uh, around the world, um, and and so that and so being in new places um, is is always uh, a way to to keep things um, interesting. Um, and then um, just uh, trying to stay positive, uh, even during the low points. You know, there's sometimes there are little mantras that you might say to yourself just to to kind of keep your yourself going. And then and then um, it's about uh, also remembering what it took to get there. Um, you know, the the race itself is, is going to be over at some point, whether it's a couple of days or or six days in in the case of Tour de Jean. Uh, but you know, the amount of time that you put into training. Yeah, the, the amount of time that that's taken away from the family and, and the sacrifices they made and, and the, the support that I get from my friends and my community and the support that I get from um, the volunteers for these races who are at the aid station to helping complete strangers for you to achieve this goal. All you know, all those things are are factored in uh and to to um kind of keep me motivated uh, mm. to to stay in these races. Um, and trying my best to finish. Yeah, that's amazing that you find that so much um, to feed you when you're out on doing these races. And um, that's really, I think that's really helpful to hear that like remembering all these other people that are supporting your efforts as well and all the effort that you've put into it to kind of keep you keep you committed while you're out there. Um, I was curious as well to hear about like, what do you do when things either get tough on the trail? You're talking about motivation, but like when, when you hit something that's unexpected, like how do you kind of tend to manage that if that happens? Yeah, we, we've talked about sleep deprivation, which is still the biggest challenge for me and most people uh, uh, once the event goes over uh, a couple of days. Uh, but for, for everything else, uh, I just take a problem solving approach and, and maybe that's the engineer in me. Uh, but I, I assess the issue. I develop potential solutions, select the best one, execute on the solution and see if it works. And if it doesn't, then you go back to your options and, and try something else. And, and that could include blisters. That could include, you know, some type of uh, random pain somewhere or even just an emotional low. And do you plan for that, Jack, at all ahead of time? Like, do you kind of think through possible scenarios of what you might encounter? I can imagine like, okay, if I have blisters on my feet, like, do you have to carry some stuff? I'm sure there's aid stations along the way as well. But yeah. I, it, I can imagine too, there's things that you run into that you can't anticipate. And then there are some things that you run into that you can anticipate and you might plan for them or not. But how much do you plan for kind of some of those situations? Um, early on, I, I didn't plan as well, and I didn't have as much experience. Uh, but after almost 10 years of doing this now, I've experienced a lot of different things uh, and scenarios. So I, I'm pre better prepared uh, to deal with them. Um, but yeah, you, in general, you, you do try and plan for all, all kinds of different scenarios uh, just 
so that you might know what to do when they happen. And, and so for something like blisters, that's somewhat trivial on the <laughs> list of things <laughs> that you could encounter. And, and yeah, you just uh, carry a little blister kit. Um, and then, like you said, they actually, you know, could help you at aid stations too. A lot of the bigger races have medics that are volunteering their time. Uh, you know, but with uh, something like a blister, as soon as I feel a hot spot, I just stop on a trail and deal with it. Uh, because, you know, as soon as that turns into like anything more than just a little hot spot, then you're going to spend hours or days dealing with it. Uh, and so then that, that just comes from experience knowing that you can't just, you know, just let, let little things get out of control because they, they could be, um, they become unmanageable. So you want to deal with it while you can, you still have a chance to, to manage it. Right. You know, if you deal with, if you end up with, you know, some kind of pain or minor injury that you think you can work through, then maybe you have to change your stride a bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and sometimes we use uh, uh, trekking poles in some of the races with really mm-hmm. steep terrain. So that you could use your poles to help you, you know, take some of the uh, load off of your legs. Mm. Yeah. So that's, it's kind of like the problem solving piece that you're talking about as well and how you might have to adjust along the way. So, um, I'm wondering too, like in terms of, you've talked a lot about like what, what has kept you motivated as you keep, you know, on these endurance events. Um, and I was wondering if, if rewards play into that at all, like, do you like plan for rewards or is that not really a a part of this? Um, I don't do anything too extravagant. Uh, if I finish something, I might take a week off from training, which tends to be more of a mental break, mm-hmm. uh, just taking a break from the mental grind of having to train six or seven days a week. Um, you know, maybe a nice meal, get together with friends after a couple of the bigger events. Uh, and then you do get a custom belt buckle when you finish a 100 miler in the U.S. And, and so th- those are pretty neat. But yeah, not, nothing too too crazy. And nothing while you're out on the course. No, no, yeah. not really. I, yeah. You, you, um, you just have to, you know, there's so many things that can go wrong. So uh, there's a lot of variables out there. So you want to try and just, uh, you know, keep on top of everything and manage everything. Right. Uh, even nutrition, which is a, a major uh, um, component of endurance events, whether you're doing uh, triathlons or, or marathons or ultra marathons, uh, you, know, you eat the wrong thing or, or take, take the wrong food. And then for some people that could be the uh, end of their race. Right. 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 Well, and one of the things you've been talking about, or a lot of some of the things that have come up, you just have been more physical in nature, but then you just mentioned the mental aspect of this. And I'm wondering if you can talk about that a little bit, like what is the mental aspect of the endurance and what does that require when you're out there? And I presume like you're not listening to music when you're out on the trails, I presume. Not me, but some, some people actually do listen to, uh, to, to music, mm. uh, but, but personally, I actually like, like hearing um, just all, all the sounds of, of nature. So I, I don't usually have music, mm-hmm. um, but um, you know, you, you have to be, you have to be um, persistent and you have to be a little obsessive uh, with, with wanting to finish because things are always going to get hard and, and, but you don't know when it's going to get hard. Uh, and so you can try your best to plan for all these different scenarios that we've talked about. 
um, but you just don't know when it's going to happen. And so, um, so it comes back to um, just trusting the process of training and having having the confidence in yourself because you've put in the time uh, into training uh, to to ride through all these uh, lows. Mm, mm, really interesting. Yeah. Sometimes, uh, you know, sometimes uh, there's uh, an experienced uh, ultra marathoners that might get to eight station and and they'll they'll try and you know if you're thinking about dropping because you know it's gotten too hard, you know they'll try and talk you through it. Um, particularly if you don't have anything that's debilitating, you know, mm. it's just that's because because something hurts doesn't mean that you know you're it's an injury. Uh, it's always going to hurt, uh, and so um, so there there are people out there that you know try and uh, help keep you motivated. Um, and, and then in the U.S., uh, you're allowed to have uh, pacers in some of the longer races, and so you know you can have a buddy, or or sometimes strangers might step in as well uh, to help keep you company, especially during the night portions of the races. That that's typically when a lot of the low points um, happen because you're you know, out in uh, these wilderness areas alone and you're really tired, uh, and so a, a pacer uh, could kind of be there to keep you company and keep you motivated. Mm. Yeah. So having that community and all those people out there certainly factors in. And as you said earlier, like having, you know, the fact that you know that your family supported you and your friends have supported you kind of helps keep you going. Um, So that's all really interesting. I'm curious also, you know, so have you had experiences where you haven't been able to finish a race and like, how do you kind of handle that? Cause that can be, you know, like you said, there's a lot of investment and training that you put into prepare for a race. And then if that happens, I wonder how you deal with that kind of, do you see it as a disappointment or do you think about it any differently? Yeah, I've, um, I've had, uh, three DNFs, um, or did not finish it. That's, that's typically runner speak for uh, not finishing a race. I've had just about three DNFs in the last uh, 10 years or so. In fact, I had one last weekend mm. um, at a one hundred mile race um, up in in Idaho. Uh, I um, ended up uh, dropping about 35 miles into it. Uh, it was a very tough course uh, in these mountains that's uh, just outside of Pocatello in southeastern Idaho. Uh, I think I had already climbed about 9,000 feet uh, and had only done one third of the race. Um, I had a couple of neural injuries uh, uh, crop up that I wasn't necessarily expecting. And, and we've talked about working through these things. Um, at the same time, I, I'm not as stubborn as I used to be. And um, I assessed the situation and I thought I could have finished. Um, but the fact that these um, injuries could have uh, uh, resulted into uh, something major um, was considered and ended up being the reason that I, I dropped. Um, I have a couple of other events that are important to me uh, this year, um, and I have just other life obligations uh, outside of running, believe it or not. <laughs> and, and so um, I, I couldn't take the risk and accept the, the setback of being injured for a few weeks or even a few months um, if I had continued, uh, and I, I no longer define success based on whether or not I finish. There, there's probably a time that I did, 
Um, and there was certainly a time that I felt like I had to finish at all costs because, you know, there, there are people that have never DNF'd and they wore it as a badge of honor and they, you know, it's, it's noted on their, you know, social media taglines and, and such. Um, but that's not really a healthy perspective. You know, I, I now define successes around other many accomplish, accomplishments along the way and along the training process. You know, did I train for six days a week? If I did, I was very consistent and disciplined and I'm happy with that. Did I still find some time to spend with the family? Because, uh, you know, you can't completely neglect them just because you're training for something silly. Um, and so sometimes just getting to the start line healthy is a success. And, and so finishing is just a bonus. So it's uh, really about um, um, enjoying the journey more, recognizing and having the discipline to train consistently and every day. And, and that can carry over to other aspects of your life. Yes, I think there's a lot of wisdom in that and really reframing like that the process is is part of success and enjoying that process overall. And these other aspects that you're talking about that you're bringing in to kind of understand like, is this a success for me for my life? Because I'm not just holding to my commitments with my training, but also around the family as well. So I really appreciate you sharing that. Um I was wondering as well, Jack, like, so you do these events and you then have to re-enter normal life. And it sounds like uh, you you don't stop training for long. So you even said, like, I might reward myself with just a week off of training. So you may be consistently training. So, but when you come off of an epic event, is there a type of re-entry that you have to do? Is there a little bit of, you know, I can imagine even both from a physical perspective, but also an emotional perspective as well. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, a great question. Um, I, um, you know, I get an endorphin high sometimes as you've heard from, um, other endurance athletes, I'm sure. Uh, but, but then, um, but then that can also go into a low, um, because I, I like, training I like being outside and, and so to to go from having that indoor has been high of uh, doing something so extreme to now stopping uh and going back to work and re-entering you know just the hustle and bustle of everyday life um it, it's hard uh, but I've gotten better at dealing with it um it, it's almost a surreal feeling sometimes Kathy uh you know you go from feeling extremely lonely in the middle of the some wilderness like a day before to being back in the in at everyday work and family life, you know, for the races that last no more than 30 hours where I start on Saturday and finish on a Sunday, I've been back at work in San Francisco in my office on Monday, uh, since I'm a little more used to it now. Yeah. So it just kind of, um, it's not as much as a shock to the system. It sounds like, yeah. and it's a little bit more routine and, you know, and, and just recovery, does that, so, I mean, you said, again, I just repeated this, that sometimes you take a week off, but what is it, re, is there even recovery from these activities or is there kind of like, hey, part of the consistent training is actually a part of recovery? I don't know. Exactly. That, oh. Yeah, to, to, totally. Um, and that, that's why I train hard. Um, I, I feel like when I've, when I've been able to, to um, put in, you know, say the 60, 70 mile weeks, which is what I, I shoot for, at least when I'm not dealing with various little issues. Um, that's, that's when my body's really strong and I'm, I'm doing some core and strengthening work outside of running as well. 
Um, and so that that minimizes the damage that you're doing, and, and that does make the recovery a lot easier. Um, but usually, you have to wait a few days for a lot of the a lot of the the random pain and swelling to go away to assess if there's anything that might need longer uh, mm-hmm. or more time for you to recover from. Um, and, and then there's just like a lot of eating and sleeping. Um, um, <laughs> I, I will say for the for Tour de Jean, uh, that that was more than a, a week of recovery. That that was uh, totally different. Um, I was I was fatigued for uh, about a month. Wow. I needed a few more months just to start running regularly again, and, wow. and that wasn't that wasn't uncommon. Okay. Uh, in talking to other people who, who did something that long. Wow. And is that something you kind of planned for or knew was going to be the case? So you kind of expected that as you came out or <laughs> not, not really. No. Okay. <laughs> yeah. 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 It was, uh, um, it was just really sleepy for, for, for a week or two. Right. Uh, right. But the, the, the nice thing about the pandemic is, uh, you know, working from home or the, uh, the hybrid uh, work model is a lot more accepted. So I could, uh, uh take a zoom meeting and then just go and take a, Nap. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Well, I want to try to get just as we wrap up our time here, a couple more questions just quickly in. One is just, you know, we've talked a lot about how your family has supported. And I'm just kind of curious how, what does that look like from a family unit kind of perspective in terms of both you kind of managing that as well as their support of you in these races? It, it takes a lot. Uh, yeah, the truth the truth is that it takes a huge sacrifice for my family, uh, especially my wife, for me to, to be able to do this. And I, I feel very grateful for it. Um, mm-hmm. it. It feels very selfish at times, given the amount of time that it takes away from doing things with the family. Uh, a lot of my training takes place uh, in the evenings or at night. And so it might mean skipping dinner, dinner with the family on some nights or having them wait until I get home to have dinner. Um, but I, I try to support them in their activities. My wife, Kelly, is passionate about horses and taking her horse out on the trail. So I try to make sure she can do that when she wants to. Sometimes it takes a bit of negotiation, but we find a way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So supporting each other in these kind of passion pursuits that you have. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Well, I'm also wondering before I kind of wrap up with these this final question, which I'll probably kind of combine, but what keeps you going back for more, Jack? I think it's just um, what what I get um, out of the whole process. Um, you know, we've we've talked about the journey uh, quite a bit, and and really, um, there's there's no nothing else I, I found that's quite like it, and no other community of people that I've um, ever met that's been just so supportive. Mm. It it doesn't matter, um, you know, in Western states if you're if you're the guy that's finishing. Um, you know, in close to 14 hours uh, and recognized as an elite athlete, um, or if you're the person who's finishing in 29 hours and 59 minutes and 59 seconds, which has happened. Um, you know, you, you go to the end of these races, uh, it's sometimes called the, the golden hour, or at least at Western States. And, and I swear the crowds there are bigger than um, the crowds that were there for the first finishers and and typically, there's just a lot of cheering as well as a lot of tears uh, just from from everyone as, as you watch the last finishers come in. So it, uh, they really are um, um, amazing experiences that you share uh, with the people in the community. Mm. 
Yeah, that's wonderful. When I'm and I'm wondering when you think about all of these experiences, there's probably too many lessons you could share, Jack. So I'm kind of just like, what are some broad lessons that you take away from these experiences that you bring into day-to-day life? And is there any final takeaway that you'd kind of offer for our listeners based on your experiences in doing these events um, in terms of thinking about sustainable ambition or living living their lives and managing their careers? Yeah, um, I, I've never been a very talented athlete, uh, but I, I definitely want to uh, realize my, my potential with this uh, one chance I have to, to do something like this. And so I do try and take that into life and, and work um, in not being afraid to set um, big or audacious goals uh, for myself. The, the first startup that I worked for uh, failed and that hit me hard professionally and hit my family hard financially. But I was able to bounce back knowing that I had put in the work over the course of my career, kind of like training, and, you know, ended up, you know, being successful at my next couple of jobs. Um, and along with that, you know, you can't be um, afraid to fail. Um, you can experience the rewards associated with achieving some of these goals. Um without acknowledging that there's a good chance uh, that you may not reach them. Mm, Really wise things for people to take away, just putting in the work, reaching for big goals and knowing that sometimes when you reach, you might fail and that's okay. And getting back up and trusting the process, that's really important as well in terms of what I take away. Um, Well, Jack, this has been wonderful. Thank you again for being on with me and sharing your experiences. There's a lot for me to digest in kind of listening to what you shared and all the lessons um, in terms of you know, your experiences and what I think can be applied to people kind of bringing more resilience and endurance to their life plus work. So um, where can people find you if they want to stay in touch? I'm on uh, LinkedIn um, and um, I'm also on uh, Instagram as uh, Ultra Runner Climbs. Great. And I will capture that in our show notes. So thank you again, Jack. This has been a great conversation. I appreciate you sharing all your experiences with us today. Thanks so much for having me, Kathy. It was a pleasure. I hope you all enjoyed that conversation with Jack. I know I did, and I definitely could have talked with him for longer and dug even more into his experiences. I mean, Can you imagine running for six days? Wow, Um, so amazing. Um, And so much one could impact to better understand how he accomplished that. So I thought I'd add a summary at the end of this episode to help connect the dots between what I was hearing in Jack's experiences that I think are relevant to life plus work. Kind of the why behind my interest in speaking to these endurance athletes. So my first observation is that what motivates Jack in doing these is a love for the outdoors and the challenge. And I would associate these with what are called intrinsic motivators. Now, intrinsic motivators are considered internally derived benefits, positive outcomes, or experience from an activity itself. So just one's benefits from learning new topics or building skills or mastering a competency. These are things that we intrinsically enjoy, as opposed to 
extrinsic rewards, which tend to be outcome-based benefits that result from the activity and are externally derived or tangible rewards. And these are things like receiving a bonus or getting a promotion. So they're more external from you as opposed to internal uh, from you, internal to you. So think intrinsic motivators are internal to you. Extrinsic motivators tend to be external to you. And really, research has shown that people are more positively motivated by intrinsic motivators over extrinsic motivators. And even there was research back in 2009 by researchers at the University of Rochester that found that those who set intrinsic goals versus extrinsic goals after one year were happier. So that's what I see Jack doing here. It's like what's drawing him to these activities is really intrinsic motivators as opposed to extrinsic ones. And that's why you find so much pleasure from doing these. And Linking your career and the work that you do, it's really just the work that you do to intrinsic motivators can really increase your fulfillment with the work that you do. We also heard this from Ruth Godian in episode 60. I've written about it a number of times in my own writing. Um, So that's one takeaway that I really heard from Jack and what motivates him and how it applies to life plus work. So really finding more fulfillment and happiness by tapping into your intrinsic motivators. Another thing that stood out for me that I thought was kind of interesting was that the first time Jack did one of these events, he just jumped into it. He did no training, no prep. So imagine going out to run longer than a marathon, more than 26.2 miles with no training or prep. And he said, quote, it hurt. And he pledged to never do that again. Interestingly, we heard a similar thing from Dominic DeMarco in episode 54 that he went and did his first, you know, long distance training, you know, long distance um, hike without really preparing for it or knowing what that would do to his body. And he experienced a similar thing. He had shin splints and it was like, that hurt. I hurt myself. And so he realized he needed to train better. So one way to look at this is that you know, we, we, when we have various experiences along our path of life and work, you know, growth and learning comes along with doing. And so sometimes we have to get into action and try things out to find out, oh, I guess that didn't work for me. Right. So that's, that's one part of it. And then I think another part of it is that sometimes when we have ambitions, we do just jump right into them without any planning or prep. And then we wonder why it's hard or uncomfortable. So it just can point you to remember, like when you're taking on certain ambitions around life plus work to, to do the proper planning and preparation for it as well. Um, so sometimes it's good to just jump into things, right. And go ahead and just take that as growth and learning. But I think another takeaway as well is doing the prep and doing the planning to make it Uh, not hurt so much um, and be a little bit more comfortable. And building on that, it was interesting to note that, and not surprising, that endurance activities require some planning, both in prep and in, in expecting what one might encounter out there. But the reality is, as we heard from Jack, that you can plan for everything. There's a lot of uncertainty and you just can't plan for it all. So you need to learn as you go and you need to problem solve in the moment. And I think that that's true for careers too. You know, um, 
Now, we'd never go on a trip without having a sense of our destination and doing some planning, right? And careers are the same. But the reality is along the the path of our work and our life and on our careers, we're going to encounter the unexpected and we will need to learn along the way. That includes learning about ourselves, learning about career paths and certain jobs and opportunities. And, you know, you need to trust in yourself and then problem solve when you run into challenges or opportunities or the unexpected. But I like what Jack had to say here that around this idea of planning, it's like plan as best as you can, but importantly, also put in the work and the training so that you can trust in that and have the confidence in that and then be prepared to problem solve along the way. And I think that there's a lot of lessons that we can pull forward into our life plus work with that application of that thinking. The fourth thing I wanted to point out is around enjoying the process and the journey. Jack talked a lot about this, and it came through as a thread throughout the conversation. And we've heard this before on the podcast. Dr. Sahar Youssef talked about this in episode 51, where she talked about enjoying the grind. So the goal isn't necessarily about getting to that end outcome, say landing a next role or a next title. Instead, we'll feel more fulfilled when we can enjoy the process. And Jack really talked about this, about how he redefined success around these events and how even he sees his training as being part of his success. And that's a part of enjoying the process. So I'd encourage you around our work to really enjoy the process. Enjoy your current adventure and then the next and know that there will be ups and downs and highs and lows. And you know, trust that you'll get through that. And I will say this links back to where I started with intrinsic motivators and really leaning into finding work that aligns with those motivators. And that can include aligning with your values, your interests, and the skills you really enjoy using and you enjoy using when you're in flow. Now, I mentioned this just a little earlier. Another takeaway that I had was how putting in the work can give you confidence that you can push through. And yet I love that on the flip side that Jack talked about this idea that failure isn't fatal. So doing the work both in your current pursuit and also if you're in transition, say it does take work if you're doing a career transition, but, you know, trust that if you put in the work, you will make progress. And then if you do fail at some point, take it as learning and keep moving forward. It's again, maybe if you hit a bump in the road, it goes back to what Jack was saying, like, okay, problem solved now in the moment. I think there are also a lot of interesting things just around sustaining yourself and recovery. One of the things Jack talks about is the difference between a hundred miler, which may only require one night of not sleeping. And he talked about how he might then be back at the office on Monday after doing a race over the weekend. And he said that that might be this surreal experience, but also because he's done those more, because it's not quite as hard on his body, even though it's a hundred miler, but he's, he is doing so much training, um, is that that hundred miler doesn't take quite as much recovery, but he talked about, and you might not have, I'm, I'm just kind of pulling these threads through, but with the tour de giants, I'm going to keep getting that incorrect. I need to learn French. Um, you know, that was a 200 mile, over a 200 mile race over six days. And so his recovery took months. 
So think about that as a lesson even in your own life and work. So imagine if you've been on a project that has been really demanding for like six months or even a year, do you think you can just keep going and going at the pace you've been going or jump right into a next intense initiative? You know, likely not. And that's one of the things that I talk about with sustainable ambition is that if we're going to strive and stretch ourselves, we really need to think about, okay, how do I sustain myself while I'm doing that? So we need to have a plan for recovery. And I think that's both, how do you plan for sustaining yourself while you're in the activity, as Jack talked about, but then how do you plan for that recovery afterwards and allow for it? So that was one thing that I thought was really interesting that I took away as well. And then the final thing that I want to just point out is around resources and those around you who support you, as well as thinking about this builds on the last point, what structures you can put in place to help support your striving. And so when we think about our life plus work, it's not an, you know, it's not for most people, um, it's not uncommon, right? That you're going to have to navigate what you're managing within your work sphere with those in your family um, around your life sphere. And so, you know, how does that relate to negotiating when you might do what within your career or how you might support each other on even a day-to-day basis of managing various life demands and family demands and that that requires this mutual support. And you heard it in what Jack was sharing as well. But then there is also an interesting thing around just how you can find motivation and internal resources by surrounding yourself with a community that's quite supportive. And think about that even within your work setting or even outside of your work setting. Like, how do you have people around you who are supporting you and giving you, you know, positive energy to keep going and striving along what you're trying to achieve in your life and work? I also appreciated how Jack mentioned how that at aid stations, there are often experienced ultra marathoners at these stations who, you know, if you're running into a mental roadblock and you're not, you know, there isn't something physical that's happening, uh, but it's just a mental challenge that you're going through, that they're there to talk you through things and to help support you through that. And when I was listening to that, I thought of Ruth Godian again from episode 60, where she was talking about mentors and just how important mentors are in our lives and can help us along the way. So there are just a number of things that came up around this idea of, you know, when we are striving, how are we putting in place some structures to help support us along the way and helping us sustain ourselves and give us the motivation to keep going? So those were some of my observations and takeaways from this episode, and perhaps you'll have some of your own additional takeaways as well. I think I may do a summary once I've completed some of these additional conversations around endurance activities, and maybe I'll do a summary of what the takeaways were, but I just find it fascinating to hear about these experiences and find how the analogy kind of applies as I've shared here to our life and work. So with that, be well all, and I look forward to being with you next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Sustainable Ambition Podcast. I hope you take away at least one learning or inspiration from today's conversation. Find more inspiring interviews and get show notes for this episode at sustainableambition.com slash podcast. 
Make sure you don't miss an episode or my insider tips, guides, and tools by signing up for Sustainable Ambition Forum, my twice monthly newsletter. Sign up at sustainableambition.com slash subscribe. And remember, it's not about finding work-life balance. It's about building work-life resilience. Thanks again for joining me. Speak with you next time.